it's Lale. I'm just back from our second ever Women Who Travel trip to Colombia and what a trip it was. Did everything from learning how to salsa dance to drinking agadiente, which I'm butchering as a name, but I guarantee it's very strong and will get you very drunk, and exploring the cities of Cartagena and Medellin for nine days. If you want to experience it for yourself, there are still spots left on the May trip and the June trip, which my co-host Meredith will be joining, and I can guarantee she's a great travel buddy. Visit elcamino.travel for more information. Hey everyone, it's Meredith Carey, and with me as always is my co-host Lala Eric Koglu. Hello. And you are listening to Women Who Travel, a podcast from Kind and Traveler. We are so excited because a couple days before this podcast comes out, our third annual Women Who Travel package, which was the start of all of this, it started the Facebook group and this podcast that you're listening to right now, um, has come out. And we are so excited to introduce not only a new look to Women Who Travel, but an amazing power list of women. Uh, It's our first year doing a power list and we are so pumped to showcase so many amazing women who are CEOs and Instagram influencers and cruise ship captains and chefs and travel guides and conservationists and people just doing incredible things across the travel space uh, on our planet and in actual space. But I want to start with you, co-host Lale and ask you just why it felt like the right time in March 2019 to create this list of immensely powerful women. Well, you know, a lot's happened in the last two years since that first Women's March. I think after the 2016 election, a lot of women felt galvanized to do something or be a part of change. And we've seen a huge amount of of, of action and activism among different communities of women in different industries. I mean, we've had the entire Me Too movement has happened within the last two years. The fact that all of that has happened in the space of 24 months is totally insane to me. And this year saw the highest number of women elected into Congress. And so exploring a theme of power and women claiming their power felt incredibly timely. I think... Obviously, the women that are on our list have all been doing incredible work for much longer than two years. But this felt like the time to kind of not only look back and see what inroads have been made within travel and women using travel to make change, um, but also to look ahead and to see who are the women who are going to be shaping the way we travel and shaping the way we explore the world in the years to come. This week, we are joined to talk about this list by Catherine Legrave, our senior digital editor. Hello. And Megan Sparrell, our community editor. Hi. Um, who both contributed to the list. And everyone had kind of a role in, in picking the women that were on this list. So when you guys were considering who to pitch and, and who would make the final cut, Catherine and Megan, kind of who did you want to be on here? What type of woman? I really wanted women that are pushing boundaries, right? And so asking the question, how are they moving forward um, things for women and also just industries as a whole? And I think you really see that reflected on our list, you know, with people going to space or being some of the few um, people in leadership in China, uh, female leadership in China. You can't have conversations about these industries without including these women. And I think that's why they they made the list. And I think kind of to something to the point, a point Lale made, there are so many women who have been doing really incredible work in this space for a long time, but they aren't household names. 
Um, and I think a few of the women that I got to write about were women like that who, you know, when you read their bio or hopefully when you read the write up that we include, you'll see why they had to be on this list and that the work they've been doing has been going on for decades. And still, you know, I've, I felt really excited after getting to write about them and would go home and tell a friend or my roommate and they just never heard of these women, but they had heard of the type of work they were doing, or they knew a photo that one of the women had taken or um, a project they worked on. And so I think it was about that as well, talking about women who have been doing this work for a long time without proper recognition. And it's important to note that the list isn't ranked. We're not pitting these women against each other. It's not some sort of competition to become the most powerful woman. That's me. No. (laughs) (laughs) But really, you know, it's... um, It was really about looking at their expertise. And so we split it up into different categories. So we have the hoteliers, we have the captains, you know, the cruise industry, it turns out, is actually making massive inroads for women, which I, until I started working on this list, actually had no idea. We have the disruptors, we have the drivers of change, we have the travel hosts, we have the bloggers, you know, something that I think at this point, you can't deny their their significance um, in the way that they dictate where we go and what we Instagram and the places we talk about and much, much more. And I think it was a very exciting way to start looking at these women's careers. Well, and one of the categories that kind of goes back to what Megan was saying about women who've been doing this for a very long time and maybe aren't household names is the woman that we gave our Lifetime Achievement Award to, um, who's been doing her work for the longest. And it's Betty Reed Soskin, America's oldest park ranger. Yay! The crowd goes wild. Um, (laughs) They should! (laughs) Yeah. I feel like I have been wanting to talk about Betty Reed Zoskin since I started here over a year ago because she's just this incredible woman. And I think this list was the perfect place to talk about what she's done. But she's she's 97 years old and she's America's oldest park ranger. And she's based at the Rosie the Riveter World War II Homefront National Historical Park, which is just outside Oakland. I remember reading about her when I was living in Oakland and she was this amazing park ranger who worked at at that museum and what part of her why she gained so much notoriety is because during the time of Rosie the Riveter and all the women on the home front movement it still was segregated and as a black woman she makes sure that that narrative doesn't get lost when we talk about the women who were such a huge part of this effort and how they were still facing segregation and what their experience was and I remember seeing photos of her she is this gorgeous woman who's 97 years old and is still there in her park ranger uniform every single day telling these stories and making sure they're not forgotten and I think giving her the lifetime achievement award was the perfect place to to honor what she's done and call out, you know, those are the kind of people who are like impacting children and schools and people in our community every single day. And the work she's doing is so incredible and it would be so easy to never know about her. But I think um, in writing about her, I was just amazed by her commitment to her work and to education. And I think it's incredible that you can go to a free museum in Richmond, California and listen to a woman like her speak about her personal experiences. And for perspective, don't most Americans retire at about 66? Yeah. <laughs> so she's done 30 years extra work. Well, and she she was working for a congresswoman when she helped found, like she helped this park be created. And she didn't start this job until she was in her 80s. Like she's, that's crazy. So many people are 
not working by then, if they're lucky to still be alive, like that's incredible. And she shows up to work every day. Like I have a hard time showing up to work some days. (laughs) And Betty is there outdoors, like in the sun, talking about stories that she knows matter. So I think that's pretty incredible. And so obviously national parks is um, a huge part of travel and preserving them and treasuring them is incredibly important, especially in this time where there are lots of conversations about climate change and looking after the earth. And I know another woman that you're super excited about, Megan, is Chris Tompkins, who some people may have heard of her work, but I think a lot of other people might not be quite aware of the impact that she's had. Yeah, she's someone else who I think you've probably read about things she's done without having any idea. But she used to be the CEO of Patagonia, which also was a position she held until 1993. And for context, like in 1995, there were zero female CEOs on Forbes Fortune 500 list. So that's pretty incredible that she served for over a decade when there were hardly any other female CEOs. But she held that role for a long time. And I think a lot of people in the travel space know of Patagonia as a brand that has that cares about being zero waste. Um, they actually they've you know had these famous billboards where they discourage you from buying more of their clothes because they want people to come in and get them fixed instead of, you know, generating more waste. And so she was a huge part of that. But after doing all of that, which is already, you know, a lifetime of incredible work that most people will never do her and her husband started going to South America and buying up incredibly large pieces of natural land that they thought should be protected from developers. So they were in largely in Patagonia in Chile and Argentina. And over the past couple decades, they bought up over 2 million acres of natural land. So they found land that had previously had cattle grazing on it and had lost a lot of wildlife. And they brought experts in to restore the vegetation. They protected um, glacial parks where they thought that developers were going to come in and build, you know, luxury lodges. And they bought all this land, protected it, conserved it, restored it, and then reopened to the public as national parks. And I mean, with the billions of dollars they spent a lifetime earning. And I think it's like, that's incredible. We, our own government doesn't protect space like that and prioritize it. And I think over the past few years, we've been reading headlines of national parks disappearing or losing their protection. The work they're doing is more important than ever. And they're doing it across several countries. Um, And so Chris did this with her husband for a while and he sadly passed away a few years ago. And she hasn't stopped. She's still continuing to work on these projects and has a whole team that joins her. And I think that's, those are the women we should be talking about. And she has this lovely quote that she told Traveller where she said, we didn't make everything private and put a lock on it. We wanted people to get out into the wild and fall in love again, Um, which I think is perfect. And also talks about how national parks are extremely democratizing. They're, you know, they're not for the privileged. You don't have to be from a particular socioeconomic background to access a national park. And I think going back to Betty Soskin, like what she's been doing to look after those spaces um, is like a service for, for everyone. And I was wondering, you've spent a lot of time in Argentina. I'm not sure whether conservation <laughs> has come up in casual conversation when you've been there, but do you think people are aware of the work she's doing in that country? That's a really good question. Um, I feel like I should send a few WhatsApps out and get a real answer, but no. And I, I think I hadn't, wasn't really familiar with her name until recently. Like I've, I've read about what she's done and I just really, I didn't know her. And I think, I don't think a lot of people are aware of what they do. I think even American travelers who go down to Chile and go to these national parks don't know either. And I think that's, 
and she's not asking for any recognition and she's just doing it. And I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think there is a lot of fanfare around it. And I, who buys two million acres of land and gives it back to the public and no one like, you know, most people don't even know their name. I think that's really remarkable. Someone I know that we've been fangirling about in our office for years now is someone who has spent a lot of time in the outdoors and showcases everything that she does um, on social media. And I think that what Blair Braverman is doing um, currently while we're recording this, she is competing in the Iditarod, um, which is an enormous dog mushing competition. Um, if you've ever seen the movie Snow Dogs, you might have, <laughs> with Cuba Gooding Jr., you and might have something to soundtrack. say. Exactly. Um, but I think that her story and her process of, of showing people who, you know, like live in New York City and have no experience with or access to these incredible Arctic style landscapes and just dog mushing in general um, has opened my eyes so much to like the joys of being in a cold environment as somebody who previously would never have uh, <laughs> had, and would never have entered one. Well, and I think she's done it in a really smart way. I mean, she's a brilliant writer. Her book, Welcome to the Goddamn Ice Cube, got rave reviews when it came out in 2016. I love it. Meredith, I know you are a big fan. Yeah, I, fin- I started and finished it on a flight. <laughs> <laughs> Um, And she's also written for Traveller before. And I mean, I could go on and on and on about her prose. I think she's such a beautiful writer. But one of the ways in which she's made the outdoors and particularly the very isolated, frozen, daunting outdoors accessible to some sort of city weakling like myself (laughs) is she's done it all through the dogs. Um, So if you don't follow her on Twitter, I suggest you follow her immediately because she tells her story, whether it's training for this race and um, her day-to-day mushing and her life in rural Alaska. Um, She tells the entire story through her dogs. Um, And you get to know all of their personalities. Flame, Flame is really one of the big stars of the show. There's also Boo, there is Pepe. Um, They're all an absolute joy and they actually have um, this hashtag called Ugly Dogs, which was born from a internet commenter who trolled her and said that her dogs were ugly um so now she calls them her hashtag ugly dogs but through it she really educates you about that world and also shows herself as a woman doing it um in i think what people often think is a predominantly male dominated sport and she writes a lot about the patriarchal society um, that she lived in when she spent some time in Norway learning how to mush in her book. Um, and But she told she was on NPR a few days ago before she embarked on this race, which I will say is 938 miles long. It the takes last, like 8 to 13 days to complete, depending of, on, the, on, the, on the snow. Yeah, the winner of last year's, I think, took nine and a half days to complete it. Um, and some of it is very treacherous. It's, da- it's dangerous as well. But she um, pointed out that mushing is actually one of the only sports out there where men and women compete together at an elite level. And she says that because of that, there is actually the opportunity to be taken seriously as an athlete because there's no chance for men to question her ability as a musher because it's not based on superior strength or 
Right. You're not just like she when you, if Blair should cross the finish line first, she will be the winner, period. Not just the winner of the female group. Mm-hmm. And there will be a male winner as well. Whoever wins is the winner and everyone competes together on an equal playing field. Yeah. I mean, I feel like both of us could wax lyrical about Blair. <laughs> I thought you were going to say we could both do the I did a run. And I was like, no, no, Lale. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. we cannot. All right. Next year, this <laughs> podcast will be coming to you from the I did a part. <laughs> Yeah, that's oh. actually a podcast that they're doing oh, for is the it race. Really? Awesome. Yes, <laughs> you can listen to. Uh, they're doing an episode, I think, every day. There you go. I think something else that Lala and I will probably never do. I can say confidently. Excuse um, me. That is climb Everest. What? <laughs> Don't do not. <laughs> I'm not climbing Everest. Um, but one of the women on our list has climbed it nine times. Yeah, so Lakfa Sherpa, who's sort of been quietly breaking records without anyone really noticing for years. And she is a Nepalese immigrant who um, is now lives in Hartford, Connecticut. And most of the year she works as a dishwasher in her local Whole Foods and raises um, her three children as a single mother. But every year she saves up enough money to fly back home to Nepal and climb Everest. And last year she did it for the ninth time, which made set a new world record for summits of Everest by a woman. And she's had to, you know, she's had to overcome her fair share of challenges. Um, She wasn't allowed to attend school, even though her brothers were. And like a lot of other girls in the Sherpa community, she also wasn't encouraged to climb, but she rebelled. And I think she started to help her brothers as a porter when um, Europeans and Americans would come to climb Everest, um, which was how she earned her climbing chops. And it's really interesting because when I was reading up on her, uh, I think it was EAP had a piece on how she doesn't train throughout the year, but because she grew up at such at a altitude. high altitude she's very used to ascending to those altitudes quite quickly so her body is already sort of trained for it which is I think just absolutely astonishing even more astonishing is that she climbed Everest just eight months after giving birth and she also did it while two months pregnant oh my god two separate climbs <laughs> what <laughs> real talk let that sink in. Wow. <laughs> Next time you're having trouble getting into work, Megan. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want it's to. It's snowing outside, okay? I'm it's also snowing on Everest. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to make a really sharp turn and go from the craziest of the outdoors to the boardroom. And I want to talk to you, Catherine, um, about someone who lives d- near Nepal, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is which is the natural transition here. But can you tell me a little bit about C-Trip and their CEO, Jane Sun? Sure. So C-Trip might not be known largely inside the US, but that's kind of besides the point. So as China's largest online travel agency, it's automatically the second biggest um, online travel agency in the world behind Priceline, so ahead of Expedia um, and TripAdvisor. So this this thing is huge, right? It has 33,000 employees, 150 million monthly users. It's valued at 24 billion. And so their CEO is Jane Sun, um, and she's one of China's few female chief executives. And she worked there 11 years sort of before rising to the top, and she's done a lot of cool things for the company. She's launched a car rental service around the world, like they acquired Skyscanner and all that stuff. But in looking into it, she's been really vocal about things that 
um, she's been doing to hire and retain women. Um, you know, she has this great quote where she told the South China Morning Post, I've faced obstacles around working and being a mother, and that's why I know what has to be done to eliminate unnecessary barriers. Because in China, um, a lot of the choices come down to can you continue working and having a family? And so she's added a lot of these initiatives. Uh, some of those are you know, giving pregnant women a free ride to work, so free taxi service, offering education subsidies for, you know, uh, lower income people to come and work for the company. And so I think she's just a really cool model of sort of the next generation of CEOs. And, and that's why I was interested in including her. And also just an example of when you have a woman in that position of power, how suddenly there are more opportunities of women because she just understands that their needs and their lives and how they have to balance work with their private lives. And when you have the man in that position, I mean, I don't think, and you know, this isn't even to the fault of a lot of men. I think this isn't some sort of bad intention, but I don't think it would cross most of their minds that a pregnant woman might need a taxi to get into work. Yeah. And she said, you know, I have two kids and these are like common small things that I face. What are the small things and what are the big things and what can we do to invest in, in, invest in and retain women, which I think is so cool. So I think it's really impressive also to see women in those positions of power congregate and support each other, um, especially when it comes to C-Trip and Jane. Gillian Tans is the CEO of Booking.com. She started with the company in 2002 when it was like very early on in its uh, startup stage. And they had just 500 listings. And now they have nearly 6 million hotels and rentals um, in more than 190 countries. And she actually joined the board of C-Trip um, either earlier this year or last year. Cool. Um, and so just to see, again, like a company like C-Trip encouraging and bringing in women from across the travel space who are in these incredible positions of power to lead, I think is is impressive and encouraging more than anything. But I think the the cool thing to me about Gillian is that she at one point was one of the highest CEOs of a she still is one of the highest paid CEOs of a public online travel company, which sounds like a very specific thing to be. <laughs> but I think, you know, like as a Dutch born mother of three, to be among the top two or three highest paid CEOs is is like a that's a feat. That's a feat, especially after like more than almost two decades of work in the travel space. And I think one of the most impressive things that she's done is Booking.com introduced this Women in Tech scholarship uh, in late 2017, which, you know, provides scholarship money at Oxford and Delft University um, in the Netherlands to introduce more women into computer science and tech so that they can feed more women not only into the booking.com, you know, like algorithm, computer science area, but also bring more women in tech across the board. And again, I think that investment in the future, like you were saying with Betty, I think is, you know, whatever move you can make, be it donate money to be able to create scholarships or talk to children every day. Like, I think that puts girls in a position of seeing that leadership every year of their life. Actually, one of the things that I really first caught my eye about Betty that I didn't mention earlier, but it was this Facebook post that went really viral, I think 
It went viral, I think, a couple years ago, and it was posted by the National Park Service. And it was a photo of her, and it said, I wear my uniform at all times because when I'm on the streets or on an escalator or elevator, I'm making sure every little girl of color is aware of a career choice she may not have known she had, which I think is amazing. Clap, 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 clap. Shivers. (laughs) Well, and that's so much about, I think, why, you know, why we wanted to do this list and why we wanted to celebrate these women is because... It's really hard to believe that you can do something when you don't see anyone who looks like you doing it. And that can be anything from a career and something big, like a like a high-powered job, or it could just be something as simple as travel and, and the spaces that you think that you are allowed to occupy. And, you know, on the podcast before we've talked, we'd had a whole episode about how the travel industry just isn't doing enough for women of color or people of color, um, full stop. Um, And one woman who is really working very, very, very hard to change that and to really um, build a large travel community for adventurous travelers of color is Avita Robinson of Nomadness Travel Tribe, which I think is probably on a lot of people's radars right now. She founded it in 2011, um, and it was quite a small, scrappy group at that point. And in the space of just eight years, it's grown to a community of 22,000 members, and it's bringing in an estimated $50 million for the travel industry. I mean, that just shows how the travel industry is missing a trick if they are not selling to a diverse um, scope of travelers. But Still, a lot of progress has to be made. And this is something that Evita talks about a lot in a piece we just published um, um, by a writer called Diana Hubble, who sat down with her for a Q&A. And I advise everyone to go read it. It's fascinating. But to continue building that momentum and to spread her message, she's started a few other initiatives. Um, she has started a web series called The No Madness Project, which she co-created with Issa Rae from HBO's Insecure. Casual. <laughs> so, if, like, that's... You're, you need to watch that. Yeah, like, <laughs> if you've got Issa Rae's stamp of approval, then, like, you're doing something right. Yeah. Because, I mean, I'm obsessed with Issa. I think she's amazing. Come on the podcast. <laughs> I love you. Um, and uh, last year, she also launched Audacity Fest in Oakland, um, which is a travel festival that caters specifically to millennial travelers of color. And there was panels and discussions and speeches from the likes of um, the Travel Channel's Kelly Edwards, who is the only woman of color who is a travel host. Yes, Correct. and she is also on this list. She's also on the list. Meredith is a big fan. She can talk a lot about her. She's a pilot. Anyway, I'm going on a tangent, just to say, <laughs> another cool woman. And um, Janae Ingram, who is uh, one of the organizers of the Women's March. And I feel like we're just quoting all these women, but they just all have amazing quotes. So I'm going to read another quote from her, um, where she says that No Madness was about galvanizing community. It was about breaking not only racial, but also socioeconomic bounds, letting people know that they didn't need to be rich, white, and affluent to see the world. I would love to talk about Kelly. We've had Samantha Brown on the podcast before, um, and you can read a lot of stories um, from her. She was a, if you have never heard of her, uh, which would be wild, um, she was a Travel Channel host for years and years and years doing so many great vacation homes and passports to Europe and Latin America and all of these series. Um, and then she was let go in 2010 after more than 10 years on the network. And it took the travel channel 
almost another decade, seven years, to hire another woman. And when they did, it was Kelly, um, who, as Ale mentioned, uh, is the first woman of color to host a, a travel show on their channel. And she hosts Mysterious Islands. And when I was doing a bunch of research about her, she was talking about how you know, her show started on the Travel Channel in 2017, and she first talked to the Travel Channel, I don't know, like eight, six or eight years earlier, and it took that long for them to get her show up and going um, with lots of stops and starts. And uh, the crazy thing is that she said that she felt like she had to be a quadruple threat, that she had to be great on screen, that she had to be a scuba diver, that she had to be a pilot because she flies herself to every island. And she had to just be like larger than life in a way that other travel hosts just didn't have to present um, out the gate. Well, then I think that's interesting that she said that because when Samantha was on the podcast, she also talked, and when uh, Meredith, you spoke to her for a women who travel piece last year for International Women's Day, uh, she spoke about how male hosts were allowed to make mistakes and they were allowed to screw up and they wouldn't lose their show. Whereas if you're a female host, it was sort of like one hit and you're out. And and I think that when, when she was talking to me about that she also said it was specifically women and just people of color in general but that so many white men got opportunities to start new shows or move on or try again when if her ratings dropped her show got cut like immediately um and and i think that the work that samantha and kelly have been doing together even there is an absolutely precious instagram photo of Kelly and Samantha at a travel conference that Kelly posted a couple weeks ago. Um, it'll be in the show notes um, that shows kind of, you know, Kelly walks through her journey of meeting Samantha for the first time and saying, oh my gosh, like all I want is to have a travel show just like you. And then years later getting to skip the line at the same travel show and sit up there and greet all of those same people who are coming through to meet Samantha saying the same thing. I want to have a travel show just like you. But they were saying it to Kelly. And I just think that that's, you know, that support that Samantha has given that Kelly has also given to other women um, is special and important in this era. And we talk about visibility, right? This has been sort of an underpinning of this conversation. It's really important. And another woman um, that I wrote about for this list is Beth Moses, um, talking about seeing more and more women in space and particularly um, oh, in science and particularly space, right? So she has the coolest title. She's Virgin Galactic's chief astronaut instructor. Let that sink in. Again, imagine, casual. Casual. Imagine her business cards. I know. It's, <laughs> I know. And she used to be, so she's an aerospace engineer and she's a former, this is another long one, extravehicular system manager for the International Space Station. And so right now she is, like we said, Virgin Galactic's chief astronaut instructor. So she is the person training all of those lucky people um, who will be able to go into space. And obviously that is cost exclusive, but she's been really vocal about her job um, and being public about saying, look, you know, there aren't as many women in the sciences that there should be and using her platform to sort of talk about that. So she's just a really inspiring person for me, even though I'll probably never go to space. Um, you don't have to her. $250,000. Yeah. Um, oh, you're not, you're not going on that expedition to Mars. No, no, I'm not. Uh, right now, yeah, as Meredith said, it'll cost you 250000 Um 600 people are currently waiting for their ticket to ride. Um, but Beth seems very cool if you go on Twitter. I'm sure you can just 
she's very active on Twitter. So if you, if you go there, you can interact with her on that medium. But she's another woman that I thought was really important to include on this list. Uh, another woman sort of in science and tech, Meredith, what you were talking about earlier on our list is Karen Seidman Becker, who's the CEO and co-founder of Clear, which is a biometric security platform. If you've been at the airport, you've probably seen those clear kiosks, which let you skip to the front of a security line using biometrics. So uh, an eye scan, a fingerprint scan. And I had a long conversation with Karen last year, and she's really interested in pushing biometrics forward. You know, we've written stories before about how biometrics are the future. And she gave me this great quote where she said, I said this again and again, if we don't do it, somebody else will because it makes too much sense. You are your best ticket. You're your best wearable. And she talked about how, you know, Lale, if you have a credit card and you give it to me, I can use your credit card and no one really knows. You wouldn't get very far. <laughs> <laughs> but no one can, you know, take my biometrics is, is much more complicated, right? So she's saying, I want a world where people walk through the airport without digging in their bag for their ID or their boarding pass. And so she has, you know, really been working toward this. Um, the other day, Clear announced that uh, people flying on Delta, you know, can go to the kiosk and just have their biometrics scanned. They don't need to pull out their boarding pass. They don't need to pull out their ID. So that's really the first step. And ultimately, where she wants this to go is, okay, I want to pay for something at Starbucks in the airport. Well, let's be real. It would be Auntie Anne's. Um, <laughs> or I want to pay for something on the plane. So that curb to gate experience at airports, at sports stadiums around the world, she wants us to just be able to walk through it sort of paper free, which I think is really, really neat. I mean, the future is buying your auntie yeah. Anne's yeah, yeah. <laughs> simply your I iris. I cannot <laughs> wait for that day. Because <laughs> you, you sat down with her and you, you had a long conversation with her and I am interested to know whether she talked at all about how the sheer concept of biometrics can be quite a freaky idea for a lot of people. And I mean, for me personally, I you know, I can't help but think it's sort of like one step away from 1984, but that's probably just my mad, mad imagination. Like I find Alexa's scary. I think they're listening to me. Alexa's, Alexa is scary. She's terrifying. <laughs> she's listening yeah. and she's recording. <laughs> and I don't know where that's going. No, I mean, she does bring up that point, but she goes back to the point about security and things that we can lose and things that we hold on to that if we lost are, are more compromising, right? If you lose your wallet, um, that's a big problem. But removing those things that she sort of sees as, as risks actually makes things more secure um, because a lot of this technology they're not storing your information um, it's sort of just like passing through if that makes sense so it doesn't go to a huge database um, and she's been very public about that I know it can seem concerning but I think the more and more we use it you know for example like if you have the latest model of an iPhone right the face scan that's a biometric thing so that's going to become more and more common just throughout life and in reducing those friction points. Well, and this, I have not used Clear before. Um, I've been very jealous when they've skipped ahead of the TSA pre-check line, which I feel like is already a fast pass. And I have it and I love it. Uh, but I used biometric boarding to get on a flight a couple weeks ago um, on an American flight. And you just walk up, you look at the little screen, it looks back at you and shows how terrible you look getting ready for your 13 hour <laughs> flight. Um, and in like, less time than it would take to hand the flight attendant your boarding pass them to scan it and hand it back to you you're through like you're already on the jetway um 
And I never thought that process could get faster, but suddenly it was just, even just getting on the plane um, was yeah. so much faster. I have a biometric passport, which all EU passports sob. Um, <laughs> won't be EU for much longer. I think all EU passports are biometric. Anyway, the UK one is. And um, God, when I get back to the UK, I go through immigration in like two seconds. I don't interact with a human. Just swipe my passport, look at a little thing, look how, at how terrible I am, and then I'm through. <laughs> I feel like the people, the two women that we should wrap up with, one of whom uh, has been on the podcast before, um, are Jen Rubio and Steph Corey, who founded Away, who we labeled as the disruptors in our power list. I mean, yeah, I don't think that we could do a power list for women in travel without acknowledging um, Jen and Steph from Away. What they have done to the luggage industry is absolutely astonishing. Um, to think that a few years ago, you really had a choice between you either had beautifully crafted, like very well-made lifetime guarantee luggage that would cost an arm and a leg, or you had some sort of tatty piece of nylon that would last a few trips and um, nothing else in between. And then away rolled along and also tapped into a whole new generation of travelers. I mean, they really honed in on the millennial traveler, you know, what their values were. I mean, it's everywhere. Every airport you're in, you see an away suitcase. I was just, I was just on our women who travel trip to Columbia and, um, and um, half the women had an away suitcase. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. It's become this statement piece to show that you are well-traveled. And they've only had the company for three years. And um, since it was founded, they've been um, listed by Forbes as one of the next billion-dollar startups. And by the end of 2018, they were estimated to have made $150 million in revenue. And I think, you know, an away suitcase isn't, isn't cheap. But, you know, they do last a long time and they uh, they have, you know, they've really started to try and pride themselves on customer service. And as I said before, they are a bit of a statement piece. They're sort of, an, they're an app, a statement piece that's easy to aspire to and also can become, a, a, you know, part of your sort of wider lifestyle look. You know, they have dop kits, they have backpacks, they have a travel magazine that's come out. You know, they really try to foster this entire kind of culture. And I think one of the best ads that they had for themselves recently was Meghan Markle's baby shower, where she had um, to, I think it was at the Mark Hotel in New York. She had, for each one of her guests, she had an away suitcase delivered to the hotel for them. And there was this amazing picture in the Daily Mail of this luggage trolley with just piles of away suitcases in their little canvas bags that say away on them. And I just sort of, I mean, if you've got that as a seal of approval, I don't think you need to do much more branding for the rest of the year. That's awesome. If you want to hear more about Jen and Steph by proxy, you can listen to her episode of this podcast and a bunch of the other women who are on this list are former and future guests on this podcast. We've had Samin Nosrat and Jessica Nabongo on in the past, Samantha Brown, as we mentioned. And next week, you'll be listening to us talk to another wonderful woman who is on this list, uh, Liz Lambert, who we are talking to at our second ever live podcast, which we are hosting in Austin at South by Southwest. Um, so look forward to that next week. We look forward to it. Hope you do too. So now that we're wrapping up, Catherine, where can people find you on the internet? 
I'm on Twitter at KJ LeGrave. Megan? At Spirelli on Instagram. I'm at Lalehana on Instagram. And I'm at Oh Hey There Mare. You can read the amazing power list and a bunch of other women who travel stories at womenwhotravel.com. And we'd also love for you to go there because you can sign up for our newsletter. If you would like to get more women who travel content, uh, you can get it all sent to your inbox and you will hear from Lala. Yeah, you'll hear from me. You'll hear from all of us. Um, And you'll also get updates on trips and meetups and all those fun things that make this the community that it is. Amazing. We'll talk to you next week.